But tonight we are in Psalm 137. It is a unique psalm. It is is one that will turn your head if you hear it out loud. Um, It is a little bit controversial and perhaps even difficult to understand for the most mature believer, um, especially because of something we're going to see at the end. Uh, Don't read ahead, though, yet. We'll read it in just a second. But... um, well, let's read it, and then let's, let's take out what God has put in, um, and so we can know more about Him and how we are to respond to Him. Let's look at Psalm 137, beginning in verse 1. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. So you may see what I mean by that last verse. Um, And we'll get to it in a minute. Well, in a few minutes. But let's talk background first. Um... Some of the background of this we know, some we don't know. For instance, we don't know who wrote it. Many psalms tell us who wrote it. A psalm of David, a a psalm of Asaph, Korah's sons, even Solomon or Moses, but this one doesn't give it to us. What we can tell from this psalm, from the psalm itself, is the context in which it was written. It's written by a Jew who is either returned home from the exile in Babylon or is writing in the past tense while he's still there. I tend to think he has come back from exile, back to the promised land, and it has not been long since he returned. And so the the wounds are fresh in the words here. The, the taste in his mouth is very bitter. And while it may have seemed the Jews should have been jumping for joy when they returned to their homeland... When they went back, all they saw was devastation. So all they saw were reminders of uh, the horror, the terror that they had been going through for over 70 years now. Unlike the people in West Virginia and California. Devastation. Going back to their homes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they came back to. The temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed, the walls of the city gone. They came back to a ravaged land. And so with that in mind, Psalm 137 is a reminder that life as the people of God, before we are literally in the presence of the Lord, uh, is not always a happy life. In fact, while we should always have joy, while Paul writes that one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, so we should always have joy if we have the Spirit in us, God never does promise us earthly happiness. Um, outside of Christ's kingdom. So uh, we are waiting for that, and, and so were the Jews. So this is an extremely sad psalm 
And it's a hard one to fully wrap our minds around. What's interesting about its placement in the book of Psalms is that it's right after two other Psalms that really just extol God for His loving kindness. If you got it open, you can see, for instance, in Psalm 136, there is a phrase repeated over and over and over and over again in that Psalm, uh, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Um, that word for loving kindness is that Hebrew word chesed, which kind of is it, it, grace, love, mercy. It, it's God's saving grace. God's saving mercy is everlasting. And it's repeated over and over as the writer of that psalm recounts really what is a history of God's faithfulness to Israel through the years. Um, so you got that right before Psalm 137, which is a very, very much a change in tone. In Ecclesiastes 3, it says there's a, a time for everything under the sun. There was that song in the 60s that, <laughs> that mimicked it. But there's a time for, for laughter. There's a time for, for happiness. There's a time for mourning and, and crying and tears and pain as well. So um, there is a time and place when the kind of praise that we see in Psalm 136 seems emotionally impossible. And that's what we're dealing with in Psalm 137. And perhaps you can identify with that tonight. Uh, I'm quite sure if you are old enough, and maybe everyone in this room is old enough, to, to have gone through a time, or more than one, where humanly speaking it just seems impossible to praise God in whatever situation you're in. Rather, you know, uh, speaking from personal experience, when you lose a child, um, when, when you lose a spouse, when you lose a job, when you lose, when your marriage is falling apart, when, when relationships are falling apart, when you suffer great loss, when you are a victim of something or, or close to a victim or maybe even just find out about grave immoral injustices going on around you, when it seems like everything is going against you, or if if you're like the psalmist and practically everything you've known and everything you've loved is swept away and life seems filled with nothing but uncertainty. Well, all of Psalm 137 is just as inspired as Psalm 136. All of Psalm 137 is just as inspired as your favorite verse. Um, and so what do you do when it seems impossible to praise God. Well, when we get into the psalm here, when we read our Bibles, we see the authors of Scripture, ultimately the Holy Spirit, they use contrast a lot. Day and night, light and darkness, um, rich and poor, first and last, beginning and end, alpha and omega, the first and last words of the or letters of the Greek alphabet, good and evil. The great contrast of Scripture are what led an early church, well, not really an early church father, he came about in the 4th century, a man by the name of Augustine, who was the bishop of a town called Hippo. He wrote a book called The City of God, and you can still get that book. And If you want to read a good book that, that written by a Christian from long ago that's not boring, at least to me it's not, I would recommend that book. But um, he, he writes about two cities formed by two loves. There's the city of man, 
the earthly city of man, and it's driven by a love of self and uh, just, uh, you know. And then there's the heavenly city of God, which is driven by a contempt of self and a love for God. And perhaps the biblical contrast that captures that best is another contrast between Jerusalem and Babylon. Sometimes in the Bible, we're reading about the literal city of Babylon. Other times, Babylon is used in a figurative sense. But every time we see the the city of Babylon in Scripture, it's not good. Something good is not happening. It, It is representative of evil. Even when you go back to Genesis 11 and, and the town of Babel, the city of Babel, which is the same Hebrew word that's used Babylon elsewhere. It's the same thing. It, it is indicative of the world. It is indicative of the world system, of, of the culture, of, of sinful humanity, of, of a world system filled with sin, a world system that's under the control of the evil one. It is... Babylon, the the civic embodiment of what the Apostle John called the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's what Babylon was all about. On the other hand, there's Jerusalem. And now what we read in the Bible about Jerusalem is that there's plenty of problems that went along with Jerusalem, and those problems were because of sinners. But... All the t- other times in Scripture we see Jerusalem held up in a, with esteem as God's city, as Zion, as the, the city of David, the city where the Messiah, his kingly line would, 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 would reign from Jerusalem, the city where the temple was, the center of Jewish worship, the center of the worship of God. In Revelation we read, If you read Revelation around chapter 18, you're going to read about a a city called Mystery Babylon that's going to be destroyed. And then a couple chapters later, there's a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem that comes out of the sky. And there's a lot of detail given about that, by the way. But in 586 B.C., you have a literal earthly Babylon ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar that overthrows the literal earthly Jerusalem. And a great many inhabitants of Jerusalem, we read in several places, one of them is 2 Kings 25, they were exiled hundreds of miles to the east and north to Babylon. Um, They were taken away from their homes, taken away from, from everything they knew, and ostensibly, because Jerusalem was so much the focus of worship, they were taken away from their God. At least, that's the way many saw it. Um, even though most Jews were not faithful in those times. The the fact of the matter is that the land was raped and pillaged and left like a wasteland. And the neighboring neighboring land of Edom had helped with that. We, We think about the exile being the Babylonian exile, but there's this little land off to the south and east called Edom that helped Babylon do what it did. And it's appropriate, perhaps, that with that we're, we're, we are where we are in Genesis now, where we've paused in Genesis is, is with Jacob and Esau, right? And what is a name that Esau is also called? Edom. We have seen that in Genesis 25. The, the, the red people. The, the, the brother nation of Israel. Edom had helped Babylon along. The temple was destroyed. The worship of Yahweh was destroyed. The people were removed from the promised land, and the Jews probably thought 
Well, it's over. We're done. I mean, after all, the northern kingdom, had they, they were done. So the psalmist writes here, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered, past tense, remembered, Zion. And the verb tenses there tell us, at least they infer, that the exile was over, and now the writer is recalling the sadness of those times. He is now far... You know, he was far removed from the beauty of his homeland uh, with you know, mountains and valleys and, and water and growth. And in Babylon, it's a lot different. It's, it's a desert area. It's uh, unfamiliar terrain to them. It's something they did not know. So when they considered where they were and contrasted that with where they had been, the grief drives them off their feet. They fall, or, or well, they, they, they sit down, lest they fall down out of control as they wept. And as they sat and wept and remembered how things used to be, they remembered Zion, which is indicative of, of the place where God is, the, the, the place where God is worshipped. Sometimes we, it, it's called you know, the holy mountain. Sometimes it's, it's just indicative of Jerusalem. But that, that, the idea is it's where God is. It's where God is worshipped. Um, and in Babylon, they remembered it was back home where God had blessed them. It was back home where God had provided for them. It was back home where God had given them the means to worship Him as He desired. But they had forsaken Him. And now the sadness and the grief of the exile was so overwhelming that it was emotionally impossible for them to worship. So in verse 2, they hung up their harps on the willows. I mean, they're saying, we're done. We're done. And it wasn't enough that they were taken from their homes. It wasn't enough that their land had been conquered. In Babylon, the Jews were tormented by their conquerors. Look at verse 3. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So they have hung up their harps, and yet the Babylonians are saying, No, you're going to sing. They, they are mocking them. It, it, they, they recognize, it's as if they recognize that the Jews were too grieved to sing songs of worship to their God. And so in order to hurt them, to, 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 to stick the knife in and twist it and, and just pour rubbing alcohol over it, you're going to sing us songs. So this was grief and it was added to grief and it drove the writer to respond, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? There, there's no doubt many of the exiles had made themselves at home in their captivity. Um, the, you know, the way many who left the land 150 years earlier when the Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom, when, the, when that happened, you know, they intermarried with Gentiles and created this half-breed race called the Samaritans. But, but the writer of this psalm could never have done that. He was never at home in Babylon. True worshipers of the Lord could never have felt home in that captivity. The psalmist could never sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Better to remember Zion and weep than enjoy Babylon. That's what that verse is saying. And what a God that is. That, 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 that is a lesson for us tonight that as the people of God, you know, 
we live in a very satisfied time. What I mean by that is, you know, by and large, we, and when I say we, I mean people who, who profess to be Christians, the, the professing church, we enjoy Babylon far too much. We, we, we live, uh, the, 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 this world in which we live, we enjoy it far too much, I think. And, and, and I think it, we can all be guilty of that, myself included. Uh, there are too many who are at home in their sins. There are too many who are very comfortable around sin. Um, we've made prosperity an idol. We've made security an idol. We've made, you know, we worship our entertainment. We treasure our creature comforts sometimes more than we do our creator. We, uh, and when we do that, it really, it only serves to buffer our minds from the thing we really should remember, which is Zion, which is the worship of, of God, which is the Holy Spirit in us, which is focusing our, on Jesus Christ, um, a remembrance of the heart from which true worship flows, a remembrance of who we are in Christ. This psalmist who had been exiled had become so keenly aware of the evil surrounding him that it relegated him to nonstop tears instead of praise. How could he sing a song of Zion like Psalm 8410, which says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. How could he sing that in Babylon when the courts were destroyed? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, he says, than dwell in the tents of the wicked. How could he sing that in Babylon? On the one hand, we know another psalm. Psalm 34.1 says, To bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on our lips, in our mouths. But on the other hand, there's something very painfully appropriate here in Psalm 137. There's a holy despair. Sometimes as Christians, we, we can fall into that. And sometimes it can be good. Sometimes it can be fruitful. Sometimes it can be very poisonous to our souls. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says that there's a sorrow that is according to the will of God, producing a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, rather than the sorrow of the world which produces death. Now, I think a good rule of thumb to judge your sorrow whenever you fall into these times is if it ultimately doesn't lead you to appeal to God and remember that God is God and that God is good, then that sorrow is probably born of some sort of pride, some sort of selfish, some sin. But if that sorrow inevitably produces a proper recognition of God, and a like recognition of your own sinfulness, then that is what godly sorrow is. And I believe in verses 5 and 6, we see that the psalmist's sorrow was godly sorrow. Look again at that. It says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. The psalmist didn't break his harp over his knee and throw it into the Euphrates River. He hung up his harp to save it for a better day. 
even as his captors are mocking him by commanding a song, he has faith that he will see better days. And that's what godly despair will lead us to. It will lead us to an understanding that there will be better days. Um, this is Daniel-like faith. There's that hymn, it's, I think it's in our hymnal, it's in a lot of old, Dare to be like Daniel. Um, Daniel was one of those exiles. Daniel had been taken, he, he's one of them. Uh, he's an exile who observed in Jeremiah that the exile was going to last 70 years and it drove him to pray, it drove him to confess sin on behalf of his nation. He says, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. And, and likewise, the psalmist equates, you know, Daniel's praying, by the way, do you remember where he was praying or what, what, what it says about the direction in which he was praying? You know, we, we think about Muslims praying toward the city of Mecca. He was, and we're not told to do this, so this is not prescriptive for us, but he was actually praying toward Jerusalem. His mind was on where he'd been and where he would be this 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 the, where where he would worship God again uh, openly freely and the psalmist equates forgetting Jerusalem to his right hand forgetting the new american standard um i read may my right hand forget her skill the king james cunning and what that is is it's probably a reference to the hand with which he played the harp New Living. New Living Bible refers use the words let my right hand forget how to play the harp. Yeah. Yeah. So what the psalmist is doing when he says that is he's equating forgetting Jerusalem with forgetting how to worship God. Forgetting God and not exalting him in his holy place above even the highest joys of our life is likened to his tongue. He would rather his tongue cling to his mouth and not be able to speak at all if he were to forget God. If he were to forget how to sing the song of Zion. And when we allow our crises and the worries of our world, and there are plenty of those, when we allow these things to to hang over us like dark clouds and never move away, then we lose sight of God's grace in our lives. We lose sight of of God's provision for us. We lose sight of, of, of what He has done for us at the cross, what He has done for us with an empty tomb, and what He will do for us for eternity. And in fact, what He does for us now. Because the Spirit is with us to help us. And, and it is the practical equivalent of us forgetting how to worship God. You know, Jesus says that He is seeking true worshipers, and true worshipers are those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And when we lose sight of God's provision for us, we are not worshiping Him in spirit or in truth, but in the flesh, and in a way that couldn't be more dead wrong. So the psalmist's godly sorrow drives him to recognize that he needs to do now what he didn't do before, the thing that has brought the exile about in the first place. It is the thing that in some of the last words Paul writes in Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, 
descendant of David according to my gospel. And that's what Israel needed to do. Now Israel didn't know the name of Jesus yet. But before the exile, during the exile, and after the exile, they needed to remember Yahweh. And they needed to trust in Him. And how badly do we need to heed this? Because we live in a Babylon of our own. We live in a Babylon of our, of, with all its trappings, with all of its moral decay and laxity and relativism. It, it, you know, and over the past several years, we've talked, there's been a lot of talk about moral relativism in the world, but it really, we're moving beyond moral relativism to immoral enforcement. What I mean, the, the enforcement of immoral, uh, of anti-biblical, anti-God things. That's what we've seen, by the way, in the Supreme Court this week, but I, won't get, I don't want to get down that path. But that is what we've seen this week in the Supreme Court. Um, but, but rather than give in to the mindset and the lifestyle of Babylon, and by the way, Babylon creeps into our lives in a lot uh, more subtle ways than same-sex marriage or homosexuality or abortion or anything like that. Because you may not be struggling with any of those things, but there are a ton of things you do struggle with. Babylon creeps in in so many ways. Rather than give in to the mindset that says, a little sin is okay. Uh, I'm going to be comfortable with this. I'm going to live in that. Like so many of the Jews had done. We need to remember the one who embodies Zion. And that's Jesus. When we are driven to the point of despair to the point of where we are about to forget who God is to us. We need to remember the cross. We need to remember Jesus Christ. We need to remember the gospel. When the attack of Satan, when the attack of sinners, when the attacks of of life's circumstances are upon us, we need to remember it is by grace we have been saved. It's by grace we have been saved. That's God's gift to us. And then we remember our skill, our purpose to praise Him, our purpose to glorify Him, to proclaim the excellencies of Him. That's uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. We ought to remove the tongue from our mouth and praise Him continually. This is what we've got to do. But we also need to know that it's one thing to to say it, it's another thing to do it, and even when we do it, until we are in that heavenly Jerusalem, until we see Jesus Christ face to face, it doesn't mean the pain will go away. It didn't go away for the psalmist. Look at verses 7 through 9 again. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. That is, tear it down, tear it down, destroy it. That word raise, kind of an old word. We don't use it very much anymore. Old daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. And we'll get to that in a second. But in verse 6, the psalmist pronounces a judgment against himself if he shouldn't remember Jerusalem. If he forgets God, may he be judged. In verse 7, though, he calls on God to remember, as he remembered, and apply an appropriate judgment to those who have sinned. Apply an appropriate judgment to those who have destroyed the holy city. 
And the problem for us, the problem for the reader comes in, in, in how this judgment is described. Um, it's a horrific judgment that he's requesting. Um, it's, it's so harsh. There have been those who find this so difficult and, and at first glance think, you know, is this, is this our God? Who, is, does, is God still good? Is this inspired by God? Is this the God who sent Jesus and he inspired this? A blessing upon those who seize and dash your little ones against the rock? That's rough. After all, Jesus, what has he told us to do? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive 70 times, 7 times. But here's the thing, and we've got to remember this when we're reading the Bible, whether it's Genesis, Revelation, or anywhere in between. It is not our job to bring the Bible into the 21st century. To do Bible study and to do Bible application right, we've got to put ourselves in the Bible. What I mean by that is we have to understand those times we have to understand the context, and not one of us has ever experienced anything remotely close to what the exiles of Jerusalem experienced. I know that I am not immune to strong feelings toward those I perceive as enemies. I remember 9-11. I remember watching on TV the devastation. I remember... We weren't married yet, but I called her at some point that day. But I, the, the phone call I remember more clearly is the one to my mom where I was bawling, 25 years old, and just bawling and saying, have you seen this? I hope we go over there and kill them all. I remember saying that. I wanted blood. Maybe you did too. <laughs> um. And of course, I, when I did that, when I said that, I wasn't praying for God's judgment. I was praying for America's judgment. And that was the problem with my response. And the problem really is that I, I'm not immune to thoughts like that, and you're not either. Of course, just because we might be able, when we look deep within ourselves to identify with the pain of the psalmist, that doesn't make those feelings right. My anger may have been justified, but my response in that moment, I forgot the sovereignty of God. It wasn't right, I mean, it wasn't wrong to want judgment, but it was wrong to want judgment apart from God's judgment. And I forgot the sovereignty of God, I forgot that He's the righteous judge in that moment. You became part of the world. I became part of the world. God has not left his wrath against sinners in the hands of sinners. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He has reserved that for himself. But at the same time, how does that justify what the psalmist said? We must also know that when the psalmist writes this, these are not the utterances of mere ferocious revenge. They are proclamations of God's judgment. They are extremely harsh, but really... They typify the type of ancient warfare that both the nation of Israel and the Babylonians and all of the surrounding nations were accustomed to. Not so ancient. 
not so ancient. Well, we think of it as barbaric, but it does still go on today, doesn't it? In other, in, 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 it certainly went on in World War II. It went on in World War II, and you could say it went on in even more recent times. But the, the point I want to make about that is don't forget that it was God who commanded His people to wage extreme warfare. This Hebrew word haram against the Canaanites when they came into the promised land. It was God who told Samuel to tell Saul to wipe out the Amalekites and he didn't actually follow through with that as he should and he was judged for that. And if we had lived in the time of this psalmist through that exile and if modern critics who like to accuse God on the basis of of verses like this had lived in that time, we and they might not be so quick to shrink back in repulsion and say, whoa, that's tough stuff. But instead, we might understand a little better how a good man of that age could rejoice that Babylon was fallen and all of its race exterminated. That sounds tough, but God's justice will be done. But in the first case, it was God's judgment. In this case, it was uh, the psalmist. uh, uh... Well, I think you could argue that there's a bit of prophecy in this too because this is inspired. I mean, this is inspired in the text. This is inspired in the Word of God. And so what do we know will happen to Babylon? Something along the lines of the kind of devastation that's being talked about here. Um, There's a quote that I ran into in looking at this this week. And it's by a 19th century guy named Alexander McLaren, who I love reading his stuff on the Psalms. And he puts it like this. He said, It would do modern tenderheartedness no harm to have a little more iron infused into its gentleness and to lay to heart that the king of peace must first be the king of righteousness and that destruction of evil is the complement to the preservation of good. I think there's a lot of truth. I mean, not a lot. I think that's absolutely right. Um, We... We are to be loving, we are to be merciful, but we are not to be soft. And I think sometimes we confuse love and uh, you know with with tolerance and and this kind of softness that doesn't address sin. These words are harsh, no doubt about it, but they are an appeal to God for justice and and really, that's the point. That's where we need to be at. That's where we need to get to in times of despair, in times of crisis. The psalmist doesn't say that he is going to raise Edom. The psalmist doesn't say that he is going to devastate Babylon. They are words of an appeal to God for justice and a recognition that God himself has said he will do it. In fact, the book of Obadiah, I think if I'm remembering in our English translations, it's only 21 verses. The whole book is 21 verses. But the book of Obadiah is a judgment against the land of Edom because they took part in the raising and the pillaging of the land and they cheered on Babylon as they destroyed Jerusalem and crushed the people of Judah. And the psalmist here is only agreeing with Obadiah and with God. 
that Edom should be destroyed. And, and for Babylon, the words of the psalmist are an echo of Isaiah 13, where God says that he will raise up the Medes to judge the Babylonians. And, and let me tell you what happened. And we read this in the book of Daniel, okay? It happens right in the middle of the book of Daniel that the Babylonian empire comes to an abrupt halt. And who takes over? The Medes and the Persians take over just like God said they would. But to bring it back down to a personal level before we close up here, we can't forget, we must not forget that God will judge each of us according to our deeds. Just as He judged Edom, just as He judged Babylon. When we think about the harsh judgments we see God employ against those who mock Him, particularly in the Old Testament, we would do well to remember that it's only by His grace that we aren't mocking Him right now. It's only by God's grace that any of us is not going to be dashed to pieces. It's only by God's grace that our lives don't resemble the type of judgment that was laid down on Sodom and Gomorrah that we have looked at in the past few months. When we recall that, and that, that is truth, but when we, when we recall that in our hearts, when we, when we call that reality to our minds, even when praise might seem impossible, we ought to give God all the glory. We must remember Zion. We must remember Jesus Christ. We must remember that God is God and that God is good. No matter what tragedy, no matter what loss, no matter what crisis, no matter what trouble, we have the promise of salvation from all of it. Just as the Jews had the promise they would return. Calvin writes that God had erected His sanctuary like a flag upon Mount Zion. The sanctuary being the temple. God had erected His sanctuary like a flag upon Mount Zion that as often as they looked to it, they might be assured of salvation. That quote reminds me where we're coming up on Independence Day. Francis Scott Key wrote in the Star-Spangled Banner that the rocket's red glare gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. We put our hands over our hearts when we sing that. Hopefully we have reverence for how God has blessed us nationally. But when we think about that, when we think about this psalm, we really have something a whole lot better than even that. The written Word of God and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit for those who have been saved. So while the psalmist might have thought that praise was impossible, he only thought that. And we must take solace that with God all things are possible, even in the worst of times. So with that in mind, let's close in prayer. Father, I've said before something that was said to me a long time ago, and it's that it seems like we're either coming out of a storm, in a storm, or about to be in a storm. That's just human life. No matter... When and where we find ourselves, though, Father, may we remember Psalm 137. As sad a psalm as it is, Father, help us to recall that even in the worst of situations, 
we must not take our eyes off of you. Father, by your grace, don't allow us to forget or forsake the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember that it's only by your grace that we are not going to be judged like this, like like what we've read. Help us to understand no matter where we are, no matter what our situation is, that you are God and that you are good. Help us to cling to that. Help us to know that you are what's best, that you know what's best, and that you are in control and that your loving kindness is, in fact, everlasting. Help us to walk in that truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.